0: If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful. Beneficial. Empowering. Hello and thanks for joining the program. Today we're going to start with a love poem but it's not the usual type of love poem. It's a little different. It's a poem written by Thich Nhat Hanh, the great Vietnamese bodhisattva, who's currently recovering from a stroke. The poem, called simply Love Poem, goes like this. Your eyes are made of the six elements, earth, fire, water, air, space and consciousness. They are made of these only, but they are beautiful. Should I make them mine? Should I try to make them last for a long time? Should I try to record them? But I know that what I record would not be your true eyes. Your voice is made of the six elements, but it is truly lovely. Should I try to make it mine? Should I try to record it? But I know that what I can hold on to or record would not be your true voice. What I get may only be a picture, a magnetic tape, a painting, or a book. Your smile is made of the six elements, but it is truly wonderful. Should I try to make it mine? Should I try to make it last for a long time? Should I try to own or record it? But I know that what I can own or record could not be your true smile. It would only be some of the elements. Your eyes are impermanent. Your eyes are not you. Yes, I've been told and I've seen it. Yet they are still beautiful. Just because they are impermanent, they are all the more beautiful. The things that do not last long are the most beautiful things, a shooting star, a firework. Just because there are without a self, there are all the more beautiful. What does a self have to do with beautiful eyes? I want to contemplate your beautiful eyes, even if I know that they do not last, even if I know they do not have a self. Your eyes are beautiful. I am aware that they are impermanent. But what is wrong with impermanence? Without impermanence, could anything exist at all? So although your eyes are only made of the six elements, although they are impermanent, although they are not you, they are still beautiful. and I don't want to contemplate them. I want to enjoy looking at them as long as they are available. Knowing your eyes are impermanent, I enjoy them without trying to make them last forever, without trying to hold on or record them or make them mine. Loving your eyes, I remain free. Loving your eyes, I learn to love them deeply. I see the six elements which they are, the six wonderful elements. These elements are so beautiful and I learn to love them too. There are so many things I love. Your eyes, the blue sky, your voice, the birds and the trees, your smile and the butterflies on the flowers. I learn each moment to be a better lover. I learn each moment to discover my true love. Your eyes are beautiful. So is your voice, your smile. The sky, the birds, the butterflies. I love them. I vow to protect them. Yes, I know that to love is to respect. And reverence is the nature of my love. Please keep the poem poem in mind. But before we go any further... Let's set our motivation for the program today as we usually do. Those of you who have been with us before will by now know what the best motivation is. But those of you who have tuned into the program for the first time may need a little explanation. The greatest motivation is bodhicitta, that is the aim to attain enlightenment not only for oneself, but to benefit all beings everywhere. This means not only ultimate benefit, that is, helping them to become enlightened themselves, but any temporary help they need as well. Of course, beings are always in need. You could spend your whole life purely in the service of others, like Mother Teresa did, and still millions would be knocking on your door. So this, of course, is a totally daunting task. However, because the number of beings is so great, and the courage to see the task through must necessarily be enormous, It can be hard to generate this type of motivation. In that case, if you really can't see bodhicitta as an option at this time, please dedicate the program to your own enlightenment instead. Then later, when you have developed further, you can switch to a bodhisattva motivation or not as things work out. Okay, so now let's just be quiet for a short moment to make sure that we have a motivation that will help us along the path and not hinder our progress. Thank you. Thich Nod Han's poem so wonderfully describes this. Your eyes, your voice, your smile, he says, are actually just a combination of the six elements. They are thus dependent and have no inherent self. Yet they are not to be disregarded because of that. They lose none of their beauty in the recognition of their dependence. In fact, that they have no inten- independent existence, no self, as it were, makes them even more beautiful. Their impermanence, the fact that they must change, transform and in due course pass out of their current form makes them even more lovely. As the poet says, just because they're impermanent, they are all the more beautiful. Isn't that an exquisite line? When we freeze things with our concepts, perhaps in an attempt to make them our own, to make them endure for our own pleasure, we lo- lose both them and their beauty. But that's the great temptation, isn't it? Should I try to make it mine? Should I try to make it last for a long time? Should I try to own or record it? asks Tichnad Han, questioning the immediate desire that arises when we come across something so beautiful. But the answer is clear. As soon as we reach out to grasp that delightful thing, be it a smile, a voice, a pair of eyes or even a person, we turn it into a picture, a magnetic tape, a painting, a book or a memory. The true thing, or rather the truth of the thing escapes us. And all we are left with is a representation, a sign. And in the Diamond Sutra, the Buddha says that where there is a sign, there is deception. We believe that we still have what was so alluring. It is safe in our keeping and we can revisit it as often as we want. But we are not revisiting the thing itself. We are only revisiting the sign, which is not the thing, but which we've mistaken for the thing. And so Thich Han says, the things that do not last long are the most beautiful things, a shooting star, a firework. But everything is like that. Everything is a shooting star or a firework. Some just explode more slowly than others. So everything has the potential to arouse that sense of intense wonder, that sense of reverence within us. As long as we remember not to freeze them, not to make them into some solid thing we can own and keep, something we can put our name onto and clutch to our bosom, they will allow us all the awe we are capable of. Just because they are without a self, they are all the more beautiful. What is a self? have to do with beautiful eyes. Recognize that you are looking at a fleeting phenomenon, something ungraspable and which is impossible to hold, and it becomes even more beautiful, more poignant. In any case, however we grasp at the beautiful eyes, in themselves they have no independent fixed nature and so have no connection whatsoever with a self as a description of the way they exist or as a description of the being whose head they're in. Nowhere in the universe, in fact the whole of existence, will you find a self of eyes, meaning something inherent in the eyes that defines an independent existence. And then, admitting that he wants to continue contemplating the beautiful eyes, Thich Han teaches us why it's so important to also recognize their impermanent selfless nature. Knowing your eyes are impermanent I enjoy them without trying to make them last forever, without trying to hold on or record them or make them mine. Loving your eyes, I remain free. Purely enjoying the eyes in the present moment without yielding to the mind that wants to own, to hold on to them, his mind stays free and open, not trapped or enchanted and tied down in in danger of attachment and disappointment. The poet can appreciate and then pass on, as free as a bird passing through the sky, taking nothing and leaving nothing. And that makes the beautiful eyes even more precious. There's no danger of their beauty ever becoming stale or the mind ever becoming tight wrapped around its possessing of them. And then Thich goes on, there are so many things I love, your eyes, the blue sky, your voice, the birds in the trees, your smile and the butterflies on the flowers. I learn each moment to be a better lover. I learn each moment to discover my true love. When we can see the impermanent, transient nature of all things, then we will find the real loveliness and lovableness, if I can use that word, in everything. Then no longer will we feverishly grasp at some of our experiences and push others away. But we can learn how to be love, as Ram Das says. That means find love everywhere, in everything. Then we learn what true love is, not that emotion we call love that fixes the loved one into a concept that must obey certain rules or satisfy certain desires. Although Ram Das does not talk about the nature of existence in his article, Being Love, he seems to be very much in touch with what Thich Nhat Hanh is saying about discovering one's true love and learning how to be a better lover. The article is on the site www.ramdas.org and it goes like this. The most important aspect of love is not in giving or the receiving, it's in the being. When I need love from others or need to give love to others, I'm caught in an unstable situation. Being in love, rather than giving or taking love, is the only thing that provides stability. Being in love means seeing the beloved all around me. I'm not interested in being a lover. I'm interested in only being love. In our culture, we think of love as a relational thing. I love you and you are my lover. But while the ego is built around relationship, the soul is not. It wants only to be love. It's a true joy, for example, to turn someone whom you didn't initially like into the beloved. One way I practice doing so is by placing a photograph of a politician with whom I intensely disagree on my puja table, my altar. Each morning when I wake up, I say good morning to the Buddha, to my guru and to the other holy beings there. But I find that it's with a different spirit that I say, Hello, Mr. Politician. I know that it sounds like a funny thing to do but it reminds me of how far I have to go to see the Beloved in everybody. Mother Teresa has described this as seeing Christ in all his distressing disguises. When I realized that Mother Teresa was actually involved in an intimate love affair with each and every one of the poor and the lepers she was picking up from the gutters in India I thought to myself that's the way to play the game of love. And that is what I've been training myself for the last past quarter of a century, to see and be with the Beloved everywhere. One of the interesting aspects of seeing the Beloved in this way is that it doesn't require the other person to see him or herself as the Beloved. All that's necessary is that I focus on my own consciousness properly. It's interesting to notice, though, how warmly people respond to being seen as the Beloved, even if they don't know what's happening. Of course, it all assumes that your feelings are genuine and that you aren't compelled to act on them or to lay any sort of trip on the other person. The idea is simply to live and breathe among the beloved. The way I work at seeing others like the politician as the beloved is to remind myself this is another soul, just like me, who has taken a complicated incarnation, just as I have, I don't want to be in this carnation any more than he wants to be in his. But since I want to rest in my soul and not my ego, I would like to give everybody the opportunity to do the same. If I can see the soul that happens to have incarnated into a person that I don't care for, then my consciousness becomes an environment in which he or she is free to come up for air if he or she wants to. That person can do so because I'm not trying to keep him or her locked into being the person that he or she has become. It's liberating to resist another person politically politically, and yet still see him or her as another soul. And that's what Krishna meant when he said, I'm not going to fight because they are all my cousins on the side. We may disagree with one another in our current incarnation, but we are all souls. A story I've told many times reinforces this point some years ago i put out a set of records called love serve remember the records which had music readings from the gospel of john and all kinds of neat things came in an album with a beautiful booklet with text and pictures it was a wonderful package and we sold it by mail order for about four dollars fifty i showed the album to my father dad was a wealthy boston lawyer a conservative republican a capitalist and at the time the president of a railroad he looked over the album and said great job here but gee you know four and a half dollars you could probably sell this for ten dollars fifteen dollars even i said yeah i know would fewer people buy it if it were more expensive he asked no i replied probably the same number would buy it well i don't understand you he pressed on you would sell it for 10 and you're selling it for 450 what's wrong are you against capitalism or something I tried to figure out how to explain to him how our approaches differed. I said, Dad, didn't you just try a law case for Uncle Henry? Yeah, he replied, and it was the damnedest tough, tough case. I spent a lot of time in the law library. I asked, did you win the case? And he answered, yeah, I won it. Now my father was a very successful attorney and he charged fees that were commensurate with his reputation. So I continued, Well, I bet you charged him a hand and a leg for that one. Dad was indignant at the suggestion. What, are you out of your mind? That's Uncle Henry. I couldn't charge him. Well, that's my problem, I said. If you find anyone who isn't Uncle Henry, I'll rip them off. The point I was trying to make is that when you see the Beloved all around you, everyone is family and everywhere is love. When I allow myself... To really see the beauty of another being, to see the inherent beauty of soul manifesting itself, I feel the quality of love in that pers- in that being's presence. It doesn't matter what we're doing. We could be talking about our cats because we happen to be picking out cat food in the supermarket, or we simply could be passing each other on the sidewalk. When we are being love, we extend outward an environment that allows people to act in different, more loving and peaceful ways than they're used to in behaving. Not only does it allow them to be more loving, it encourages them to be so. In 1969, I was giving a series of lectures in New York City. Every night, taking the bus up the Third Avenue, I got the same extraordinary bus driver. Every night, it was rush hour in one of the busiest cities in the world. But he had a warm word and a caring presence for each person who got on the bus. He drove us as if he were sculling a boat down a river, flowing through the traffic rather than resisting it. Everyone who got on the bus was less likely to kick the dog that evening or to be otherwise hostile and unloving because of the loving space that driver had created. Yet all he was doing was driving the bus. He wasn't a therapist or a great spiritual teacher. He was simply being love. Remember, We are all affecting the world every moment, whether we mean to or not. Our actions and states of mind matter because we are so deeply interconnected with one another. Working on our own consciousness is the most important thing that we are doing at any moment and being love is a supreme creative act. Now don't you think that this is learning how to find one's true love and how to be a better lover? Couple this with a deep understanding of selflessness and interdependence or, as Thich Nhat Hanh says, into being and how can we not develop the sense of the sacredness of all things? It will not be difficult to find the will to protect them for we will regard everything with the same attitude that Ramdas might approach the holy beings on his altar. Thus Thich Nhat Hanh can end his poem with the line Reverence is the nature of my love. One of the things that struck me and compelled me to include Thich Han's poem in the program today was the completeness of its realization. Looking deeply into the nature of the Beloved, the poet finds impermanence, emptiness, personal freedom, reverence and a purity of love. And yet he expresses it in terms so easily accessible to all of us. As those of you who have been with us in previous programs will have found, the Tibetan commentators... Take a much more scholarly, analytical approach. Talking about the self of a person in his commentary on the Lama Tsongkhapa's text, Geshe Sonam Rinchen asks, Does the self exist? And then answers, Yes, but not as we perceive it. Why does it appear to exist but cannot be found when we search for it? Because it is false. It appears to be what it is not and exists in a way which does not accord with how it appears. Yet owing to our confusion and imprints of ignorance, we assume that it exists as it appears. And that cl- concluded our discussion on the personal self last week. But geshe then goes on to address selflessness of phenomena as well. He writes, In Buddhist literature, selflessness is mentioned repeatedly. We must understand correctly to what this refers and what kind of self does not exist. He then goes on to quote the great Indian scholar Chandrakirti's commentary on Aryadeva's text Yogic Deeds of the Bodhisattvas. Chandrakirti writes Here, self is an inherent nature of phenomena that is, a non-dependence on another. The non-existence of this is selflessness. geshe then says The self is very clearly dependent on its basis of attribution, on the process of attribution, on parts and on causes and conditions and has no inherent existence. Identifying the object to which the misconception of the self adheres is of supreme importance, because to us it appears to exist as something independent and not merely attributed to body and mind. He then goes on to quote the much-used snake and rope metaphor. Ahead of you on the path lies a coiled mottled rope, But you are not aware of this, he writes. Darkness is falling. As you stroll along, you suddenly see a snake in front of you and halt in terror. The snake appears from the side of what is lying on the path. It appears to exist in and of itself, and you assent to this appearance, which causes fear to arise. The snake is a figment of your imagination, a fabrication, and the object of negation. But you cannot be sure of this until you make an exhaustive search for it where it appears. When someone calls your name, you respond by thinking, Oh, he's calling me. The I which appears to your mind at that moment is the validly existing self. But if that same person then accuses you of theft and you are innocent, you will feel defensive, self-righteous, and your I will swell in size, appearing much larger than when your name was called it will seem quite independent of any other factors. In normal situations, the appearance of the fabricated self is difficult to identify, but in situations of crisis, it pops up vividly. He says that the self which we conventionally label onto ourselves is just a mere designation and a mere appearance, and it functions perfectly well even when we don't analyze it. It appears as existing in reality, And that appearance does exist. Also, the self that seems inherently existent to our misconceiving mind also exists. What does not exist, he writes, is a truly or inherently existing self. Now this might seem quite confusing, but basically the appearance of a self that does not depend on anything else does exist. Also, there is a self that appears to us to exist on its own, not depending on other things. However, the self that actually exists, not depending on other things, but has an inherent existence, that self does not exist at all. geshe writes further, On the level of appearances, as mere attributions to causes and conditions and to parts, things are functional, and actions and agents operate faultlessly. But if you are not satisfied with this and try to pinpoint things under examination, nothing can be found. This unfindability indicates lack of inherent existence the statement that things are mere attributions and mere appearances should not be taken as a denial of their existence he then uses another well-worn traditional example of the reflection of a face in a mirror does the reflection actually exist? yes of course it does that face appears to be a real face but is it? No, it's not. No matter how you investigate it, you will never find a real face in the mirror, even though what's reflected appears in every way to be real. It has shape and color, expresses various emotions, smiles in pleasure, grimaces in pain, and so on. Gessler writes, Even though it is in every respect not what it seems to be, the reflection is not non-existent, but exists and functions satisfactorily because with its help you can put on makeup and attend to blemishes. This, he says, is how everything exists. And the fact that they do not have even an atom of ultimate existence does not mean that they do not exist at all. The greater your understanding of dependent arising, the more convinced you will be about the connection between actions and their effects, he writes. You will respect it because you recognize through the natural law of dependent arising positive actions yield agreeable results and negative ones disagreeable results he says further that by understanding dependent arising that things come about and exist only by depending on other things causes conditions and so on we can come to realize that nothing has any inherent independent existence then by understanding that we come to clearly realize the connection between actions and their effects we also see that everything in cyclic existence and beyond has a dependently arising nature. Still, it strikes me that if we can deeply see as Thich Nhat Hanh sees, it will become almost unnecessary to talk about actions and their results. If we approach everything with the deepest understanding of its transient and selfless nature, with love and reverence as Thich Nhat Hanh does in his poem, How can we even consider any negative deed, any deed that harms? How could we not also take the vow to protect, knowing that to love is to respect and knowing that our love is in the nature of reverence? And with that, we must part for our time is now up. Thanks for being with the program today and please tune in again next week. As we go, please dedicate any positive potential we have generated today to the enlightenment of all beings everywhere. Thank you, and goodbye. Thanks for listening to this free FM podcast. If you want to hear more content like this, you can support free FM via Patreon. Head to patreon.com/freefm89 to find out more.